takes place on the fourth day of creation. And it's, uh, it, it took the Lord a whole lot shorter amount of time to get through creation than it has me to get through this chapter. But uh, God's been good, though, through it. And uh, it, it's been truly a, a pleasure to study it and to dive deep into it. And there's so much more here. And I want us, I believe the reason why the Lord allows us to have studies like this is not so that we would fill up our heads with big words or all these sort of apologetical reasons as to why we believe the Scripture, but rather so that we would theologically be more sound and trusting in who this God is and how He's revealed Himself to us, so that we might know Him. And uh, tonight I want to read verses 14 and 19, which is day number four here. It says in verse number 14, And God said, that's been the reoccurring uh, theme so far, God speaks and it happens. Not one time do we ever find, and God was there, and a big bang happened, and then after millions of years, some of the particles spread throughout and had chain reactions and began to evolve, and then there was a bunch of hot gas that turned into big rocks and broke things down and built things up, and everything came about by chance. But rather, it just said God was there already and spoke, and it happened. It shows his preeminence. It shows his power. It shows his might. It shows his character. It shows his authority over all things. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let there them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set, uh, set them in the firmament of the heaven to give them light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. This is perhaps the most majestic thinking in our minds, because you and I, while we might not have been there to watch all this take place, you and I, every night that we don't have clouds covering the skies, we can look up and see exactly what God says He makes here on this fourth day. And even during the day, uh, you can look at the sun, but just for a moment, all right, glance away, and you can see its power. You can see uh, all that it does for Earth and throughout the, our, our solar system and everything else. We find that God places and hangs these things here, and He does so for a reason. But I want to begin tonight in verse 14, as He says, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament. Now, the firmament, we've already dealt with this word. It appears all throughout Genesis 1. The firmament dealing with, also translated as an expanse, it is the idea of the separation of these uh, heavens, if you will, as he says, the firmament of the heaven. Now, which heaven is he talking about here? Well, we've talked about the three heavens already. The third heaven, which is the, what we would consider to be the home or the dwelling place of all of who God is, the heaven of which you and I would go to upon death. The second heaven, meaning the, the cosmos of the galaxies, uh, by the billions that are in existence throughout the universe, then we would have our heaven, which is in the sense of uh, our firmament that is in this earth, our earthly atmosphere and surrounding our earth immediately, um, what allows us to, to live. And now we come to it, and he says, let there be lights. Now, the lights of heaven. The word lights here, it's the meaning of light or source of light or a luminary. The word is also related, and I believe that this is very important here. The word that is used for lights here goes back to a root um, and is often as well translated or understood to be as a lamp. Now, lamps are incredibly important during these days because one, 
to the audience that is writing this and is hearing it and reading it and translating it for the first time, uh, there by the hand of Moses and the power of the Holy Spirit through Moses, they understand exactly what lamps are. Why? Because they don't have light switches. Everything that they do has lamps, oil lamps, and uh, the lamps that specifically are, are going to come to their mind are the lamps or the candlesticks that are found in the temple later on in Israel's history or in the tabernacle during uh, the days of, of Exodus. The lamps or the candlesticks in the temple represented and pointed to the heavenly cosmos which could be seen in the darkness of night. The curtains themselves within the temple uh, had sewn within them these patterns and these intricate details that when the multitude of candlesticks were lit, that inside it would appear as if the heavenlies or the luminaries or the stars and the galaxies were shining forth. So as the priest enters in, he is immediately reminded that it is God who made and formed and fashioned not just man, but all things. And because he made the stars and the heavens, and as you enter into that temple, you're realizing that when we gaze up at the night sky, or when we gaze up at the heavens during the day, that we're gazing at what the temple would be called the dwelling place of God, the place where God rules, the place where God dwells, the place where God shows forth his power and, and, and his uh, preeminence and authority over all things and rules over his creation. The heavens are the lamps, if you will, of the light of God. Physically speaking, the lamps of the heavens that we're going to see provide a physical light. The sun shines and the moon at night reflects the, the brightness of the sun and, and goes through its phases and its motions and its gravitational pull and everything else that it does. And the stars that are literally millions, billions, and trillions even to some degree of light years away from us, we can still yet see, maybe not with the naked eye for some or so far away, but you can look out in the telescopes and see so beyond our finite brain's imagination and see this physical light or these physical lamps out in the night sky. You have to remember, too, that to the people that are uh, reading this, Moses and the people are living out in the wilderness. If you've ever been out in the wilderness, you know one thing. At nighttime, the wilderness gets real dark. So what provides light for them? Those lamps. And so the lamps inside of the tabernacle or temple and even inside their tents remind them of the light, as God says, let there be light, the separation of light and darkness. But as well as when they would sleep, even under the stars of heaven, they can look out and gaze and see this is God's handiwork. The same God who holds the stars is the same God who promised to our father Abraham that his descendants would outnumber those stars. It brings to mind the fact that there might have been very well night after night of Abraham's life after receiving that promise and covenant of God that he, who is a, a tent dweller, much like they were for thousands of years, to dwell under the stars and to look up and go, one day the God who called me, the God who made this covenant with me, is going to give me a multitude of descendants far above all that I can see. Now you know too that in a big city like Hillsville, the stars get, I mean, they're, they're kind of dimmed by the skyscrapers and everything, aren't they? But now you go out in the wilderness, though, and you know those stars shine brighter, don't they? Because light automatically, even a dim light or a far-off light, is that much brighter in the dark. Abraham, though, would wait 20-plus years for even just one star, if you will, of a descendant to appear that promised sun and, 
and, and all the way down through the line. And furthermore, in the tabernacle, timber, in the temple, rather, the stars the, uh, that would be seen in the luminaries of the lamps that would be around, they pointed in worship and sacrifice to the creation of the universe and that the God of the heavenlies is to be the God of the hearts of his people. It is a humble reminder to the priest that enters in and sees those glowing lamps that these represent, first of all, a holy place that he's entered into. Secondly, a place that reminds us of the holy God who made the heavenlies and that that same holy God communes and fellowships with the hearts of those who dwell under the stars that he made and they know him and follow him and have relationship by faith. And so it's so much deeper to see the understanding of this that they, we, when we see let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. We're not just talking about God saying, eh, throw, we'll throw a sun out there, we'll throw a moon, we'll throw a few stars, and you know, it'll all come together. We're talking about in an instant, galaxies are sent forth and they're perfectly spiraled shapes and stretched out states and the way in which everything would uh, uh, circumnavigate one another and, and go around and orbit and the gravitational pull and fields and things that even go beyond some of the comprehension of the smartest scientific minds today to understand that all of this happens simply by and God said. Furthermore, we see that not only does this include the stars, the heaven, the moon, uh, but it includes all galaxies and astrological formations in their perfect order and space throughout our universe or expanses that we call the heavens. David Guzik writes about this, and I wanted to give this to you uh, mostly for illustration's sake, for us to put this into mind, all right? Is there anyone out here tonight who's good at math? Okay, yeah, well, don't look at the preacher. The only numbers I need is the book of numbers, all right? That's it. Okay, I don't need to worry about math a whole lot. All right, so no mathematicians out here. That's fine. All right, but here's, I want to put this in perspective. David Guzik writes, When you take into account all that is necessary for the sustenance of life as we know it, there are few planets able to support life. Taking into account factors such as our galaxy type, star location, star age, star mass, star color, distance from star, axis tilt, rotation period, surface gravity, tidal force, magnetic field, oxygen quantity in atmosphere, atmospheric pressure, and 20 other plus important factors, the probability of all 33 occurrences happening on any one planet is 1 in 10 to the 42nd power. The total number of possible planets in the universe is 10 to the 22nd power. Now, I'm not great at math. Matter of fact, once they started doing the power stuff is about where I stopped math and thank the Lord for that. I want to put it in perspective is this, and this is a number that I, you can't even say. It's, it's like dealing almost with an imaginary number. It's something that's almost unfathomable or unimaginable. Ten, right, one, let's see, any one planet, one in ten, right, those are bad odds, right? They're not great odds, right? You're not betting on one in ten, which we're not betting anyways because we're Baptists, right? Amen? Okay, all right, just checking out there, testing the waters. The one in ten to the 42nd power. Now, like I said, I don't like math, but what that means is it's ten and then 42 zeros behind it. That's a lot, all right? Now, if you've got a one with five zeros behind it, what's that number? 
100,000, million, right? Keeps on going, right? We can go to billions and trillions. After that, quad, 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 quad what? I don't know, right? We don't know. Now, someone out there who's a whole lot smarter than I am certainly might be able to know. But to go 42 plus, right? Zero. How about this then? He says, on, uh, on the total number of possible plants in the universe is 10 to the 20 seconds. So that seems a bit better, but it's still 22 zeros. Right? It's still a number that no one in this room, I don't think, is even able to pronounce or say or fathom the infinite possibilities that that is. It is literally scientifically showing that there is no denying that God had a hand in this. That not only that God had a hand in it, but God had his word in it, and then he speaks and it happens. There's no other explanation. Logic does not show that, you know, that chaos comes, or that rather order comes from chaos. Evolution would teach that out of all these chances of, if you will, if they were to take dice and, and roll them, that if they were to do this that many times, right, the, the 10 to the 42nd, that many times, then eventually one out of those, one out of 10 times to the 42nd power, they'd eventually come up with a planet that is just like ours, that sustains life, that has life, and all those things. The improbability is so strong that there is not a single person who is addicted to gambling which, by the way, that is an addiction at times, right? it certainly is, that would bet on those odds. Because it's, it's impossible. Yet the Bible tells us that with God, nothing should be possible. Why? Because he's God. Only God can do what you and I fathomably and our human brains would say is impossible. There is no denying God here. Furthermore, the issue at hand that some might read in this is going, well, hey, on day three, God makes plant life. How do you know? We go back and he says in verse 10, and God called the, the dry land earth and the gathering together and the waters called the seas and saw that it was good. And God said that the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after its kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after the kind, and God saw that it was good. We discussed this last week, after its own kind was important. It means you're not going to have a pumpkin and an apple tree come together to make a pumpkin apple, right? You might have that in a candle, but you don't have it in nature. It does not happen. The kind is a specific kind, and God makes, when he makes plant life, the day before he makes the sun, moon, and stars to appear, he does so in a way that shows that only God could do this, and he does so that he doesn't make just seeds that are going to be planted and then grow after years or, you know, a number of uh, tenants or, or working the ground, but rather they're growing, they're already there, they're fully formed, and they're ready to reproduce. Everything that God does in Genesis 1, when he creates life, every living thing was made to then reproduce. And we're going to see that importance. The creator makes life so that what is made life can then create as well. The plant life, animal life, and especially and specifically Adam and Eve. They are there to procreate, to make life, to bring forth life. Why? Because ultimately one day, lineagely, it's going, lineagely, I know it's not a word, but I made it up tonight. Lineagely, it's going ultimately, what's it pointing to? To Christ, who you're going to follow all the way through who is the same one from the beginning who would speak and create and be a part and active in this creative process. So the question would be raised, how can there be plant life on day three before the sun on day four? 
Uh, One commentator writes, After the earth had been clothed with vegetation and fitted to be the abode of living things, there were created on the fourth day the sun, moon, and stars, heavenly bodies in which elementary light was concentrated, in order that its influence upon the earthly globe might be sufficiently modified and regulated for living beings to exist and thrive beneath its rays in the water, in the air, and upon the dry land. End quote. Uh, Calvin would go on to write, The Lord, by the very order of creation, bears witness that he holds in his hand the light which he is able to impart to us without the sun and moon. There are many who would like to say that they can, they can disprove the Bible, looking at this, or saying, well, it's not, it's not possible for us to have such a thing. But when we take into account, in the beginning, God, then this certainly makes sense, doesn't it? If we trust the first four words of Scripture, in the beginning, God, or really, Bereshith Elohim, two words in the Hebrew, then we will understand and believe the rest. If we don't believe in the beginning God who already was fully eternal from everlasting to everlasting, full of all power, all glory, all present, all capable, all knowing, is able to speak and have it happen, then we won't have the rest of it. We we will stumble upon everything else. And so God waits to make the sun and the rest of the cosmos until day four to show that all of creation and life came from no other source except for his own power and might. Why? Because that is truly the only explanation. Someone said, well, that takes faith to believe. Yes, well, it takes faith that he, to believe that he didn't. It takes just as much faith, if not more, to believe. To believe that a 1 in 10 to the 42nd power, and somehow that's how we got here, by a roll of the dice that many times, that's how we got here. That takes more faith and belief, and God said, and it happened. Especially when we see the order and the way that the creation uh, has laid out. If you want an example... Look at your own eyeball sometime, or look at your neighbor's, right? The eye and its intricacies. There's no explaining that from chance. There's no explaining your cardiovascular system or the way that your veins work and your blood pumps and your whole body goes. There's no explaining uh, how just the world works in its natural order without understanding God creates and it happens. To believe that chance makes such a thing so marvelous, so wonderful, so good, out of just a roll of the dice, is truly insanity. And it is truly faith of an insane person in an insane, illogical idea. However, there are many people who are truly what we would consider to be good-hearted people who genuinely believe that. But what they miss out on is, in the beginning, God, and so they cannot trust God for the beginning, so how can they trust God for the end? You and I, we sing many songs about the end, but we can trust God for our end because we trust him for our beginning, long before even the foundations of the world. Secondly, God waits to do such to undermine mankind's natural draw to worship the heavenly bodies as gods or sources of life to be worshipped. This is still yet a danger today. There is still a danger of idolatry. Idolatry is not gone. Idolatry happens even in church buildings today. Idolatry happens in the jungles today. Idolatry happens everywhere. Wherever you find mankind, you will find idolatry, which then, of course, leads to immorality. Idolatry is a sin of the heart. Immorality then goes forth from it. And we find that idolatry is a rejection of who God is. It's a rejection of verse 1 in Genesis to the end of of Revelation. It is this issue of idolatry that 
Moses, by God, is riding, and they're about to go into the promised land where they're going to be surrounded by people, and they just came from a people who are pagan idolaters. Y'all remember the, the Egyptians were not Bible-believing Christians, were they? No. They worship false gods and false deities. And as a matter of fact, one day we'll look at it. Every single plague that God sends is a mockery of a specific Egyptian god. He does show to show that there is no one or nothing that can come against him or even be compared to who he is. Why? Because no other god, if there were, created out of nothing. Only the God of the Bible, only the covenant God, Yahweh, has done such a thing. Only Elohim, the thrice holy God, the God three in one, has done such and could do such. Now, I want to turn with you for just a moment to give you the importance of this. God puts forth the importance in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. It's over that far in your Bible, okay? You'll find it. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy 4 is the beginning here. As Deuteronomy really is a, is a wonderful book. Um, it is literally basically three big messages from Moses as Moses is ending his life, and he's about to come to the end and is encouraging them and preparing them for Joshua and for the promised land. And he's once more reiterating and preaching the word and what God has declared, what God has done, and who God is. But over in verse number 15 of chapter 4, it says, Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, and likeness of any winged fowl that is flieth in the air, the likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth. Mind you, keep those thoughts in your mind, because that's the same language and words used in Genesis 1 as God creates. What he's saying here is you're going to be tempted to worship the creature and the creation instead of me, your creator, the one that you actually must bow down to. He says it in verse 19, this is key. Unless thou lift up thine eyes and unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. What do we find? We find the importance that God says, know that it is I who has made the sun, moon, and stars. It is I who has hung them there. So that way you will not be tempted like the rest of the pagans that you will be surrounded by to go and worship the sun. You say, it sounds crazy to worship the sun. Well, let's put it in perspective. If you've never had the Bible, if you've never been in a pew, if you've never seen or heard of this God, and yet you see the sun and you know that it shines and brings you warmth, it's the sun that allows your crops to grow, it's the sun and the moon that rotate, that bring forth uh, the crops and the seasons, what will you begin naturally, if you've never heard of God, to start to go, it's those things up in the sky that bring us life and that keep us sustained. This is why idolatry has happened literally from the very first sin and until the last sin. This is why still yet today there are people groups who worship the earth, worship the sun and the moon and the stars. This is why we even say, and I reiterate all the time, stay away from horoscopes because it is a worship of those sun, moon, and stars. It's not Christian. It's not godly. It's not even something. Well, I just, I just do it to see what it says. It's not right. It's a dangerous thing, and it's a fine line between going, trusting in the Lord who made the sun, moon, and stars, and then trusting the sun, moon, and stars. 
Right? We're not leaving things up to fate. We're leaving things up by faith to God and God and who He is and what He has done. The importance of this is given in Deuteronomy 4, but the result, and I'll turn here just for sake of time so you don't have to. Romans chapter 1 gives us the result. Here's what happens. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. That's us and all living things, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Is there anyone in the world without excuse? Right? Is there anyone in here in the world who has an excuse to say, well, I don't trust God because of such and such? No, he says it is clearly showing and demonstrating that the creation speaks not that there was a chance that we got here, but rather that there's a God who formed and fashioned and made us and holds us, sustains us. Furthermore, he says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, became fools. Sounds very familiar to today's day, doesn't it? It says this, and this is important because it goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, what God warns about to the children of Israel, and back to Genesis 1 in the creative order. He says, and change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. The result then is that God gives them up and over to their own sinfulness and pushes them into their own dark sin of which they will continue to go further and further and further. A reprobate mind is that God it's that someone is leaning over on the edge by their own free will of sinfulness. And after so long, God then gives them over and lets them go into it. Sin is the result, but sin is also the judgment. Does that make sense? Every sin is a result or, or of our sinful heart and nature. But God giving people over to a reprobate mind is that he's letting their sin, which is a result of their fallen nature, then become their own judgment. Because sin leads to death. Sin leads to separation. Sin leads to everywhere except to know God more. And so we see the importance there. We see the result there. Then we find the great lights given back in Genesis 1. He says, he calls them the great lights. In verse 16, that God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light, lesser light to rule the night. What's the greater light of the day? The sun. What's the one at night? The moon. All right. So we know that. And that makes sense. But why is it they called great? The sun and moon are called great not because they are bigger and better. As a matter of fact, in comparison to other stars in solar systems, ours isn't that big. Ours isn't even the biggest or the best or the brightest. It's just ours, though. It's the one that God gave to us. So what does great mean here? Why is it of importance? It is meaning that they are great because of their purpose and relation to provide life for man. Think about this. Move the, us away from the sun, what happens? Too cold for life. Move us too close to the sun, what happens? We're too close for life. It's too hot. How about you move the moon? We're in trouble, right? You move the moon one way, the earth is flooded. You move the moon one way, and I don't know what happens, but I don't want to find out, right? When we think about this, though. The intricate details of where they've been placed are placed specifically to allow life to happen. So what God is doing is making and bringing about these great lights 
not because they're great in size, or, but rather because of their closeness to mankind. What would be the greatest light to you? The far away galaxies and stars or the up-close sun? Up-close sun. How about this? What's brighter at night? The full moon that we had a couple nights ago, right? Or the stars that's a trillion miles away? And it's still a light, and it's still very bright. But which one's the greater one? The greater one, the moon. And the moon's not as big as the star that's far away, but because it's great, it's because it's right there at us. Right? And so especially to the mind who looks up at the stars like these tent dwellers that the children of Israel are who are first receiving and reading and writing this and understanding it, they know exactly what God means here, these greater lights. And furthermore, they are great as well in our eyes in comparison to how far away and small the stars and distant galaxies appear to be to us. Stars are great, but in comparison to our close sun, moon, and our own stars that are close by, they are not nearly as great. They are great as well because they have been assigned by God to rule over the day and night. The word rule means that it is distinguished authority. And during the sun, right, during the day, the sun is ruling, right? Even on a cloudy day, it is still the sun that gives the light that goes through the clouds to get to us. I often say this to people that, you know, well, I, I just get so down on cloudy days. Well, think about this. It's cloudy from our perspective, not from the sun's. <laughs> Right? The, the sun's always shining. It's always there, whether we see it or not. It's still very much as powerful, still as warm, still as this and that and the other. And furthermore, we find then the purpose of day four. The purpose, first of all, is given to divide the day and night. And, and also, I want to back up to verse 16. He says not only that he made the greater light to rule the day and the lesser to rule the night, but then he made the stars also. He does so that no one can say, well, God made the sun and the moon, but everything else happened by chance. Or everything else happened because of evolution or time or, you know, luck of the draw. He's saying everything that is out there, I made, right? And, and the rest of Scripture goes on to say that everything that was made was made by him. There was nothing made without his hands and knowledge and power. Now, first of all, to divide the day and the night, I'm going to turn and you can just mark it for reference in, in uh, your Bible, Psalm 136. Psalm 136 is, of course, the famous psalm that is basically going over and over and over again. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks unto the, the God of gods, for His mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His mercy endureth forever. To Him who alone doeth great wonders, for His mercy endureth forever. To Him that by wisdom made the heavens for his mercy endureth forever. To him that stretched out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that made great lights, for his mercy endureth forever. The sun to rule by day, for his mercy endureth forever. The moon and stars to rule by night, for his mercy endureth forever. And he goes on and on then to talk about the works of God. And for those who knew this Psalter, and not just read it, but would sing it, Every time what they're doing is they're declaring God did this because his mercy endures forever, because of his character, because of who he is. It is a reminder as you read the psalm that each thing in the act of creation and redemption throughout all of human history is because of the everlasting, enduring mercy of God. That everything that takes place in our life, everything that takes place in this universe is an act of the mercy of and grace of God. 
He does so because He does so. And He withholds from us what we truly deserve. Do we deserve the sun, the moon, the stars, and the beauty? Or even deserve the, the knowledge to be able to know Him? No, of course we don't. But yet He gives it by His mercy that endures forever. Then He says the second purpose of day four is then to give, or excuse me, um, to divide the day and the night as well. I wanted to, to, to touch on this. This reiterates the literal day of each day of creation and as well, spiritually speaking, the broader scope. It gives a spiritual relation to separation between that which is in darkness and which is in the light. For the priest that walks into the darker temple or tabernacle and surrounded and separated by everything and he sees the lamps or the luminaries that remind him of God's creation and we find as well that he would be reminded of Psalm 136 that his mercy endures forever over everything that God has done from creation to redemption to one day consummation which Israel longed for and you and I do as well and then we find as well that in our day-to-day life the uh, the continued theme throughout our Christian walk that light and darkness do not go together. They are separated, separate, because the darkness hates the light, is what John chapter 3 tells us through Jesus' own mouth, his own words. The second thing of the purpose of four, for day four is to give signs. Now, this is where a lot of people go, oh, good, signs in the heavens, that's what we're looking for. Because when we go to make decisions, what do we often look for? We want a sign. Lord, give me a sign here, right? And we, we try to look for the will of God like we're playing Wheel of Fortune, right? We go, well, throw a R-S-T-L-N-E up there and we'll see what we can get. And let me start guessing some letters, spin the wheel and, and see, if, see if I can figure out what God has for me in my life, right? See if we can win the puzzle here. And, and we're going, God, we just want you to show me what it says, right? We're looking for big signs on the side of the road or we're looking for the neon signs that tell us this. Or, and, and then uh, we're looking for more and more and more signs because one sign's just not enough. Signs can be a very dangerous thing, but God gives these as a sign. One commentator writes, partly as portents of extraordinary events. Matthew chapter 2, of course, dealing with the sign that the Messiah has been born. He's come, Emmanuel, God with us. Luke 21 deals with it as well. Uh, we even see the signs given in the heavens as the darkness encompasses the earth as Jesus is dying on the cross. The divine judgments that we can see, and you can go and just for sake of time, I don't have time, you can go and reference these and go read these verses, uh, the judgments dealing with in Joel chapter 2, Jeremiah chapter 10, and Matthew 24 that point to the end signs that are coming. Now, this is why if you see a blood orange moon or a red moon even, don't think, oh shoot, this must be the night, right? All right? I want you to think and understand this. You and I are not called to look for signs. You and I are called to look and to listen for our Savior. As a matter of fact, it is Jesus who we're going to read about in just a moment who said it was a wicked and perverse generation who sought after signs. It was a, it was a wicked and perverse group who sought signs. What we need in today's world is not more signs of God's existence or authority, but we need to just trust the Scripture of God's existence and God's authority. It's not about signs. You want a sign from God? It's right here, and you open it up, and you read it. And you ask the Lord to open up your eyes, and open up your heart to it, and he certainly shall. Now, in this as well, this does not mean that we seek after signs whenever God has or will do a sign in the heavenlies. It will be absolutely unmistakable for anything else to have caused it. That is why when we read 
in Revelation about the different signs, or we read in the Old Testament about prophecies about the different signs that are coming, or what Jesus even says in Matthew 24, 25, about the signs that are coming and the heavenlies. You and I are not looking for those things right now because to be honest with you, I don't plan on being here for those things when everything goes bad. I plan on being with him. So you can keep looking all you want down here. I'll plan on being here, so you're going to be by yourself, all right? All right we, we look at this and we think, those things are coming. Why? Because the world itself will be coming to an end. And it will be unmistakable. As a matter of fact, it deals with that in Revelation, that those who are on this earth, who are still very much against God, will even curse God in that, and they'll be angry with the Lamb and know that it says in Revelation, angry with the Lamb who sits on the throne, who is bringing forth His wrath. They'll be angry with Him. They're not going to be going, oh man, we better get right before we get left. Right? We already got left, but we're trying to get right now. They're going to be angry with the one who's bringing forth these signs. He is going to be bringing forth signs to show that I am God and God alone. And enough is enough. It's a scary thing to think about. The third thing that he talks about is to give seasons, days, and years. Even thinking about the times where the Magi come to find Christ, and even long before then, man has been using the sun, moon, stars, not to tell his future, but rather to be able to tell times and seasons of things. Don't believe me? Mark, as you go outside your home, find a certain constellation. And know this, that there are certain constellations that you'll see in one season, but not in the next. Why is that? Because that's the way God made it. To show us the times and the seasons and the days and to know that if the sun's out, right, when it comes up, it's morning. Sun goes down evening and the evening and the morning were the first day and the evening and the morning were the second day and so it shows us that god does these things for our good for our benefit which is why he's going to call it good and, and we see here i want to turn and i'll do it myself matthew chapter 16 tells us this matthew 16 verse 1 through 4 the pharisees also with the sadducees came and tempting desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven doesn't that sound like today how many in your family and friends have you heard say, I'd believe in Jesus if he just showed me a sign? If God proved himself real to me? The fact that they are alive and breathing and have the audacity enough to say such a blasphemous statement is enough proof to show that there is a God. Not only a God, but the God of the Bible who is everlasting and enduring in his mercy and loving kindness and patient enough to allow them to have the breath enough to curse him in such a way. Who in the world are we to tempt God and say, well, if he'd give me a sign, I'd believe in him. Jesus gave all the signs in the world that he was the Messiah at people that knew the book. And they said, nope, crucify him, for he's a blasphemer and a wine-bibber and a drunkard and a friend of sinners, of which we are not. We want nothing to do with him. Glad we're not like him. What a shame. He goes on to say in verse number two, he answered and said unto them, when it is evening, he said, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. Right? And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and low ring. Uh, oh, ye hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. If you want a sign that Jesus is who he said he was, he gives the greatest sign that there ever is. It's not in the sun, moon, or stars. It's not in the heavenlies. It's certainly not even the fact that there's birds chirping and seasons changing. 
It is over and found in a place called Jerusalem, up on a hilltop garden, where there is still a rock that has been rolled away that was meant to hold in a dead person. But the dead person didn't stay there because he is God and raised to life. The greatest sign ever given is the fact that Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, not only spoke life and gave life at the very beginning of Genesis 1 to create life, but is the one who called forth Lazarus, who was dead, dead, and begun stinking out of the grave and gave him life, and is the same one who raised up the third day to promise us that you and I too, who are in Christ, will one day be raised up as well. And that even before we're looking forward to our future being raised up and glorified and all of those wonderful things, that when we were dead in sins and trespasses, he raises up to newness of life and gives us and makes us a new creation, a new creature with new purpose, new desires, and a new love and a new vision for him. Where he gives life where there was no life. Future Israel, God's chosen nation, would use the signs and seasons for their feasts, festivals, and faithful gatherings. You can see that and read for it yourself in Leviticus 23. Furthermore, they would as well be looking for those signs and still are today, mind you, as is the rest of the world. Today, we're not looking for the signs of the times. You want to know why? We're not looking for the last days because we've been in the last days since Jesus ascended to the Father. How long have the last days been going on? Since right before Pentecost. Since the day that Jesus said, hey, I'll see y'all later. And the angel said, what y'all dudes looking at, right? The same Jesus going up this way. He's coming back again the same way. Same spot and everything. And so you and I are not waiting for the last days of times because we've been in it for then, for, for that long. We're waiting and living and looking and longing for our Savior. Lastly, the reason why he does these things on day four, put the sun, moon, and stars, and all these wonderful things, is to give us hope of the eternal day and the new heavens and the new earth. I've read it a thousand times, and whether you like it or not, I'm going to read it a thousand times more. Revelation 21 tells us in verse 22. It says, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. The word temple is also goes back to tabernacle, which is to dwell. The word dwell, tabernacle, is used in verse number 3 of chapter 21. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. We come over to verse 23. And the city, notice this, had no need of the sun neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. How wonderful that is, because the moment that Adam and Eve sin, and they're cast out of the garden, what happens? The gates are closed. And literally on the gates of Eden, we're going to find later on, if y'all hang on for another couple weeks, months, however long until we get there, you're going to find that it's a flaming sword and a cherub that stands there to make sure that those gates will be closed and man would not come back into that garden. But look what happens here. The gates are open and they stay that way because there's no more danger. There's no more danger of sin. 
There's nothing unclean there. Why? Because it says, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. Notice verse 5. And there shall be no night there. And they need no candle. What's another way of candle? A lantern. What were the lanterns in chapter 1 of Genesis? The luminaries which God makes. Ain't that something? Same luminaries and lanterns and lamps that were in the tabernacle in the temple. But we don't need a tabernacle or a temple. Why? Because there ain't one there because it already told us that the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Isn't that nice? It's cool. He says then, and the Lord God giveth them light because there's neither light of the sun for the Lord God giveth them light and they shall reign forever and ever. We don't need the sun. We don't need the moon. We don't need the stars. Why? Because we have the Lamb of God. We don't even need the temple to remind us that God created. Why? Because we shall see his face. It don't get much gooder than that, y'all. It don't get much gooder. Tonight as we close this, God said in the evening, in the morning, we're the fourth day, and just before then in verse 18, he says, God saw that it was good. God is bringing everything together to bring forth abundant life on the earth and to prepare a place where the crown jewel of creation can abide, thrive, and have dominion. It is good because it has made it good for man. And this earth, as good as it is, is temporary. And the one that we're going to see and enjoy that we just read about in Revelation 21-22 isn't going to be good or gooder. It's going to be the goodest. It's going to be nothing like it. Can't even begin to fathom or imagine the beauty of this place. It's described. Can't, can't even begin to fathom. Tonight, I want to end with this, and I'm not going to sing it for you. But one of my favorite hymns begins, and it makes me think as we read about day four, where God makes sun, moon, stars, the galaxies, the heavens, the, and just spits it all out there, and there it is, for a great purpose. A greater purpose than just even dividing the day from the night and giving us lights and giving us, you know, uh, the reality of how small we are, but really to give us some good for ourselves so that we might thrive and live and be, find it useful and be reminded of him in worship. O Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. And then what happens? Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. Grateful that we can worship you and serve you and know you. And Lord, that you've revealed your truth, your word, and, and Lord, all of who you are. God, help us to praise you for it, to know you for it, to trust you for it. And Lord, uh, God, that we might uh, see these wonders in the heavens and to know that you alone have created such things and that you alone do so for your purposes so that we might know you and worship you. Lord, help us to point others to the fact that you are God and God alone, that we might live lives worthy of you and your calling. Lord, we thank you for this time. I pray that you go with each one of us, keep us safe, till we may meet again. 
Lord, that you would use us in mighty ways. We love you. We thank you once more for who you are and what you've done for us. So we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all have a blessed evening. Y'all be safe out there in the rain, and we'll see you Sunday morning.